is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. So we actually covered this case in episode four of Going West back in January of 2019, so three years ago. And we get so many requests to cover episodes one through seven, uh, which got lost last year when we transferred our content to a different host site. But sadly, we don't have the audio file, so... You know, we're kind of in this position where we're like, should we just redo them? Because most of our listeners have not heard those cases. And if you have, it's been a while. Right. And we can promise you that this will be a much better take anyway, because we also re-researched it and added a ton of new information that we didn't know to look for back when we started this show. Yeah, I actually learned a lot more doing the research this time around, and hopefully you guys will too. And I'm so glad we are redoing this case right now because it has stuck with me all these years. It's just one of those cases for me. The elements are so unbelievably bizarre and unsettling. So thank you guys for tuning in. And I think our show has gotten so much better over the years. So if you did hear this case three years ago, we're sorry for the redo episode. But we're sorry that you heard it three years <laughs> actually, ago. Actually, <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what we're sorry about. <laughs> yeah. Because that shit was bad. It was not great. We <laughs> were not very confident as podcasters back then, but we no, are now. So We were so very scared and shy, but here we yeah, are, our true are. selves. So thank you guys for tuning in. We love you guys so much. Um, if you're looking for more Going West content, if you're all caught up on Going West, and two episodes just is not enough for you a week, we just released our 60th full-length ad-free bonus episode on Patreon on the disappearance of Leah Croucher that happened in England in 2019. It's very weird. Yeah, so you guys can head on over to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast and binge all those episodes. Absolutely. Also, we're going to be at CrimeCon this year in Vegas, Woo! April 28th through May 1st. April 29th. Oh, oh, sorry. The 29th <laughs> through the 1st of May. So make sure you get your tickets. You can also use our code GOINGWEST to get 10% off of your standard badge. All right, guys. This is episode 179 of Going West. So let's get into it. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. Rocketmoney.com slash going west. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. 
for award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. That was a call received by a 32-year-old woman in Anaheim, California, and the calls continued to come in both at her home and at work. On May 28, 1980, she disappeared forever. This is the story of Dorothy Jane Scott. Jane Scott was born on April 23, 1948, to parents Vera, whose descendants were from Ireland, and Jacob Scott, whose parents were Italian immigrants, in McKeesport, Pennsylvania. But she spent much of her upbringing in California. But other than this, surprisingly, there is not a lot of information regarding her upbringing out there on the internet or in the papers. So where she went to school, you know, what she wanted to do with her life, these things are unknown to us, but we do know that she was considered a very kind-hearted and compassionate person. We also know that she grew up religious and she took her faith very seriously. So fast forward to 1976, when Dorothy was 28 years old, she gave birth to a son who she named Sean. And Sean's father wasn't in the picture and actually lived out in Missouri 
but were unsure what their relationship was like, just that they were not together, and Dorothy raised Sean on her own. But not completely on her own, because her aunt helped her out and even allowed Dorothy and Sean to live in her house alongside her. So jumping four years ahead now to 1980, when this story takes place. 32-year-old Dorothy Jane Scott was living in Stanton, California, which is right next to Anaheim in Orange County, so just outside of Los Angeles, with her aunt in her aunt's house. She was a 32-year-old single mother of four-year-old Sean Scott, and she was working as a back office secretary for two jointly owned stores, Swinger's Psych Shop, which sold psychedelic items like lava lamps, love beads, etc. So like a cool head shop. Yeah, and actually Custom John's Head Shop. So kind (laughs) of two of the same type of shop right next to each other, owned by the same person, and she was the back secretary for these stores. Yes. And Dorothy's father, Jacob, previously owned the psych shop, so this is how Dorothy began working there in the first place. It was located in the neighboring city of Anaheim, which is, you know, at this time in 1980, hosted around 220,000 people. For those who don't know, that is where Disneyland is. So there's a little, you know, geography for you. Yeah. And this is also where her parents live. Like Daphne mentioned, Anaheim is super close by and just about 20 minutes from her aunt's house. While Dorothy worked, her parents often babysat their grandson as she worked tirelessly to provide for her son. And that was pretty much Dorothy's life. She didn't like to go out or date. She was kind of a homebody. And according to one of her friends, her life was, quote, as dull as a phone book. So it's kind of funny that she worked for this very free-loving, hippie-cultured shop because she was definitely more of a straight-laced person. But just based on photos of her, she definitely seemed, you know, hippie-ish in a sense, based on her clothes and her hair, as well as uh, flowers that she would sometimes put in her hair. Yeah, like looking at photos of her, I wouldn't have guessed that she was more of a homebody, a little more strict, didn't really like to go out to, you know, restaurants or out with friends or go on dates. Because she, she doesn't look like that kind of person, if that makes sense. Yeah. So according to friends, family, and colleagues, Dorothy was very religious, a devout Christian, and a compassionate woman who really didn't have any animosity towards anyone, and she preferred to stay indoors and attend church rather than dabble in outside influences or attend social gatherings. So she did not drink or do drugs at all, meaning she was a pretty low-key person, but a wonderful low-key person. She would occasionally date men, but she mostly focused on her son, Sean. And her parents noted that she never really had a steady boyfriend that they were aware of. And despite treating other people with generosity and seemingly not giving anyone any reason to dislike her, a man took a fondness for her that altered her life in such a drastic fashion that remains unexplained to this very day. It all began in the early months of 1980 when Dorothy started receiving anonymous phone calls on a regular basis for months at her work and at her home that she shared with her aunt. So off the bat, you gotta wonder if this is someone she knew because how else would they know where she worked and what her home number was as well? And I know phone books were very much a thing back in these days, but then I'd wonder if Dorothy was listed herself 
or if it was her aunt who would have been listed. Yeah, I mean, you would kind of assume that it would probably be her aunt that was listed in the phone book since she's the one who owns the house. Yeah, so that's what I'm thinking too. So it's got to be somebody that she knows. That's just, you know, initial thoughts of these phone calls. But they're going on for months, and despite the fact that they're going on for months, she does not know who's on the other line. Yeah, so obviously this is kind of alarming for her. And the man on the other line would often proclaim his love for her, and other times he would threaten her with murder. But it was always the same voice. So this guy was really going back and forth, totally giving her whiplash with both extremes. Which is terrifying. He'll call one day and say, you know, I'm in love with you. And then the next day, it's some horrific message about him wanting to kill her. Yeah, some threat. Like, what is that? And he openly admitted to her that he was stalking her and substantiated those claims by giving various details regarding what clothing she had on at certain times and her day-to-day activities So it's clear that this guy is watching her. And watching her in multiple places. And Dorothy's mother, Vera, later noted that one time when the man called the house, he told Dorothy to go outside because he had something for her. So she did. She went outside and there was a single dead rose on the windshield of her car. So this is a very interesting part to me because if he had called her and told her to go outside and check her car he would likely have either just put the rose there or done so very recently, which could only really mean that he lived close by or that he used a nearby payphone to make that call to her. Because if he had put the the flower there or the rose there, and then 30 minutes later or something, he calls her, she could have gone out to her car before then. So it just kind of makes you wonder, when did he put the rose there in proximity to when he called her? Which is very eerie. I mean, it doesn't 100% mean that he lives in this area. He could have driven to that area very easily if he had known where Dorothy was staying at the time. Um, But, I mean, it's a possibility that he was close. I mean, that is a good point because for all we know, he put that there a while before. But at least this tells us he's in the general area if he puts something on her car. Exactly. And also, I mean, super ballsy. It's a super ballsy thing to do right outside of her house where she, her aunt, or a neighbor could have spotted him especially because Stanton is a city surrounded by other cities. So there are people around. Yeah, there's enough people around that they would have just probably seen this guy. So yeah, you're right. Very ballsy. So there was one phone call in particular that really haunted Dorothy. The man told her that he would get her alone all to himself and dismember her into bits and pieces. She alerted her parents and even mentioned that she recognized the voice but couldn't quite place who it was. So was it someone she used to know or someone that she already knew who was putting on a voice? The disturbing phone calls and violent threats continued. So in May of 1980, Dorothy signed up for karate classes and even considered purchasing a firearm, though she didn't end up buying one because she apparently was a bit concerned about having a gun in the house with her young son. Now, many of you are probably wondering if Dorothy ever called the police to report any of this. But all we know is that she at least told her family. So although these days uh, tracing phone calls is much easier, as well as the knowledge of warning police about stalkers, even though in modern cases there still sadly isn't much that police can really do, it's possible that she either didn't know if the calls were pranks or just didn't know how much could be done about the situation. Right, because you're correct. It is very sad, but in stalking cases, even today, if something isn't actually done, if if the person on the other line 
hasn't actually done anything to you, even if they threaten you, there's nothing. The police can't really arrest somebody. They can in some situations for sure, depending on what the person is doing or saying. But especially back in 1980, the police probably would not have done much about this. Yeah. And, and sadly, I, I remember reading about this because we did a case on stalkers uh, for The Dark Parts, which is our sister show. And we had talked about the fact that stalking wasn't illegal until like the 90s. Yeah, I, right, which is another thing. So as much as, you know, we can say, oh, why didn't she call the police? There's probably a good reason for it. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, she was smart in that she was starting to take some self-defense classes. Absolutely. And I think that this does prove that she was scared. So she she was taking this somewhat seriously if she's going to sign up for self-defense classes to kind of help her if this person is serious. Definitely. One week after receiving that terrifying phone call that Heath just explained for us, on Wednesday, May 28th, 1980, Dorothy, though feeling relatively safer after beginning her karate classes, but remember she had just started them, so you don't learn a whole too much, she still felt very unnerved as she headed to work around 9 p.m. to attend an employee meeting after dropping her son at her parents' house. During the conference, she noticed her coworker, Conrad Bostrin, was looking pretty ill and even had a concerning red rash on his forearm. And being the kind and considerate person Dorothy was, she offered to take him to the UC Irvine Medical Center in Orange, California, in her car with another colleague, Pam Head. And if you're not familiar with the area, Anaheim, Orange, and Santa Ana, which we will bring up shortly, are all next to each other and their work was just 10 minutes away from the hospital for reference as well. So before heading to the hospital, since her parents live very close by, Dorothy wanted to head over to her parents' house to check in on her son and let her parents know what she was doing, where she was going. It's noted in many articles that she changed her black scarf to a red one. I'm sorry for all my comments here because I feel like I'm kind of looking into everything, but this case fascinates me. So I had in my previous notes for this case Um, And although this may not be relevant, it is a bit interesting. So this area gets very hot because it's freaking Southern California in May. But her mom actually suggested that she change into a thicker scarf, hence why she put on the black one. So it wasn't a fashion scarf, but I've always found this a bit interesting, though I may be overthinking it. And she simply changed, you know, an article of clothing and there's nothing to it, but... I don't know, kind of, is, do you think that's weird at all? Yeah, it's a little bit bizarre, Get, just given, you know, like, you and I know, Southern California is very hot. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, wearing I, a I scarf know. in May. I just, yeah, I just kind of wonder about that, and I know it was nighttime, so maybe it was a little brisk, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, ahead. just an Finish. interesting little detail. <laughs> yeah. So, after changing scarves and updating her parents, Dorothy, Pam, and Conrad headed to the hospital and went straight to the emergency room. Medical personnel determined that Conrad had suffered a black widow spider bite and they treated him for it while Dorothy and Pam remained in the waiting room for him to be uh, discharged. So Pam notes that Dorothy was never out of her sight, that the two remained in the waiting room until Conrad came out just reading magazines. At approximately 11 p.m., Conrad was released from the hospital with his prescription. And he was completely confused about how and when he would have uh, been bitten by the spider. Prior to leaving the hospital, Dorothy went to the restroom while Pam waited with Conrad, the only time the two women were separated. 
Shortly after, Dorothy insisted that they go to the pharmacy store that was mere feet away to get his prescription filled while she retrieved her car, a white 1973 Toyota station wagon, from the parking lot to pick them up out front because she didn't want Conrad walking in his condition because, you know, he was very ill and still feeling very weak. Yeah, and for those of you who know anything about spider bites, like, they can be very, very serious depending on which type of spider bites you. Oh, absolutely. And there is a lot of speculation around this decision for Dorothy to go retrieve the car by herself. Because as we know, Dorothy had just received a terrifying phone call one week earlier where a man basically told her that he wanted to brutally murder her. Yet Dorothy had gone out by herself in a dim, large parking lot at 11 o'clock at night. So later, many speculated if she had possibly taken a phone call while she went to the restroom and was maybe going to meet somebody outside, but it's not clear if she did. Though I will say that Pam really didn't believe she took a call, so it's also possible that she thought, I'm at a hospital, I'm safe here, I'm just going to go grab the car, I'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. There's lots of people around, you know. I mean, That's this, the place you're supposed to feel safe. Right, it's, it's a fucking hospital. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think she would have had any sort of fear just And especially knowing that, you know, Pam is there, Conrad's there, There's pe- people she knows. People right inside who can help me, you know? So I, I, I think that was probably more likely the, the situation. Right. So the pharmacy only took Pam and Conrad about five minutes. And then they assumed that Dorothy would be waiting directly outside for them. But she wasn't there when they got out of the hospital. They proceeded to walk to where Dorothy had originally parked her vehicle, And suddenly, they were confronted by her car driving way too fast in their direction with the headlights on full beam, partially blinding them as they waved their arms in the air to get her attention, assuming Dorothy was behind the wheel. Right, but since the beams were right in their face, they could not see who was behind the wheel of the car. Exactly, but crazy enough, the driver of the vehicle, so whether it was Dorothy or somebody else, never stopped as the vehicle swerved past them erratically and made a sharp right turn out of the parking lot. Pam and Conrad briefly ran after her car, but after it turned, they stopped and stood there absolutely dumbfounded. They're like, why the fuck did she just leave us here? They originally assumed that an emergency came up regarding Dorothy's four-year-old son, or maybe she had an important obligation that she had completely forgotten about. So they decided to remain at the hospital for two whole hours, believing that she would return. But... Dorothy never did. Finally, Pam decided to call Dorothy's parents and ask if they had any contact with their daughter, but they hadn't. That's when they promptly notified the police and reported Dorothy missing, because at this point, they felt like something terrible had happened. The whole situation just felt very off. Around 4.30 a.m. on May 29, 1980, so the following morning, Dorothy's station wagon was discovered engulfed in flames in a back alleyway 10 miles away from the hospital in the city of Santa Ana. But Dorothy was nowhere in sight. And it wasn't initially known that this was Dorothy's car, but over the next few days, search parties gathered to see if they could find any clues nearby or any sign of Dorothy. But there was nothing. Of course, we can assume that her car was burned to destroy any evidence, though the technology at the time wasn't very advanced anyway. 
But that was actually the year that the first computer database of fingerprints was developed. And this just brings us back to the night before at the hospital. What had happened to Dorothy in the mere five minutes that she was alone while she walked to get her car? Was someone waiting for her out there? And did they drive her car out with her in the back seat or in the trunk? Something that was also reported early on in this case was that the car was followed by another car. Now, it's unknown if that was on purpose or this car just happened to be going in the same direction, but what's really strange is that the attacker would have had to have driven a car to get there in the first place, right? Unless he took a cab. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing because, you know, maybe was there two people involved and the other person had driven the other guy's car out of the area when the other guy left in Dorothy's car, you know? So definitely very suspicious and it just makes you think how this person got there because to me and as we'll get into like this is not Dorothy driving her car yeah you would definitely think that she would never leave her her co-workers there at the hospital the only way that I would I would think it was her driving her car is if she had seen the man she was confronted and then she sped away and the car behind her is actually her stalker following her and then something happened somewhere else later you know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. So that's definitely a possibility. Um, also, there's a lot of speculation that she was probably attacked that night because the stalker went into a rage after finding out that she was nurturing another man. Because remember, he was seemingly constantly watching her. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Vera and Scott, Dorothy's parents, feared the worst, especially since they had known about the harrowing phone calls. While investigators worked on finding any trace of Dorothy, they warned her parents to keep quiet for the time being 
and not speak to the media or the newspapers at all. But things only got more horrifying when Vera received a phone call from a man saying he had her daughter. When Vera picked up her phone, a male asked, are you related to Dorothy Scott? Vera replied, yes, to which the caller stated, I've got her, before hanging up the phone. Then I can't even imagine what Dorothy's parents are thinking. Well, she's like, do you, like, do you really have her? Yeah, the fact that their daughter is missing and then they're getting these taunting phone calls is just so creepy and sad. Because we know that Dorothy had a stalker, of course, and they would call her and say horrifying things. So automatically you're going to think this has to be the guy calling her parents to freak her out. Yeah. But there's also the people out there who are total assholes who like to get involved in investigations and taunt the family and make shit up. Yeah, just for like their own sick pleasure. Right. But it doesn't seem that this case was highly publicized. You know, the parents have not yet spoken to the media or the newspapers. So it kind of makes you wonder... Is this really the guy? But luckily, the police were immediately called regarding this disturbing phone call. But still, they told the Scott family not to release any details about their daughter's disappearance or this phone call to the media in order to have an upper hand with, you know, pivotal information and to steer clear of false confessions. So after a week had gone by without any new information or results, Jacob and Vera decided to report the story to the local newspaper, the Santa Ana Register, and offered $2,500 to anyone who would provide information leading to Dorothy's whereabouts, dead or alive. With Dorothy's disappearance now in the eyes of the public, Pat Riley, the editorial manager for the Santa Ana Register, received a nameless phone call on June 12, 1980. The caller said to him, quote, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. So either this is a delirious man who has never been involved with Dorothy at all, or it's someone she previously dated or someone she was dating that no one knew about. And I don't know why no one, even her parents or aunt, wouldn't know if she was dating someone or why she would keep it a secret, especially after receiving threatening phone calls. But knowing what happened at the hospital, it really does seem like it was someone who was completely stalking Dorothy and they saw her with Conrad and freaked out, which is sad because she was just being a helpful coworker. I, I don't really believe that this was someone she was secretly seeing. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I think you're right. I mean, this person is definitely unhinged if they're going to call her and threaten her, you know, with death threats and then be like, I love you so much. So yeah, I would I would assume if they saw her with Conrad that they were like, what the fuck is going on? Right, and knowing that Vera had received this phone call at home from a guy saying that he had Dorothy, since that did come out before this story was really publicized, I personally believe that that was her stalker. And I also kind of think that the call that came into the Santa Ana Register was as well because, you know, people can fake this stuff, but we know this guy is calling her. We know he called her mom, so... To say, I killed her, she was my love, I caught her cheating with another man, she denied having someone else, I killed her. That seems like something her stalker would say. And it's just so sad because if this was at, you know, if these crimes had been taken at, uh, had been done at a later date, we would have caller ID. 
so we could determine who this person was, but because it's 1980, they just don't really have anything. Right. So, and we'll get into that later too, as we discuss more calls that come in. It's just a very, very frustrating thing that this guy is calling in. Numerous calls were made and nobody can freaking track this guy. The caller then went on to relay intimate details specifically about the night of her vanishing that wasn't released publicly. Acknowledging Conrad's spider bite and the fact that Dorothy had changed from a red scarf to a black scarf after the work meeting, which is a very creepy thing to relay, and that would lead us to believe that this person followed her that entire evening and noticed that scarf change. And that's why I say, too, this has to be the guy. Right. And because it really, just from previous calls as well, it seems like this guy was somehow devoted his whole life to just following her around. Yep. Like, to even mention the scarf, so creepy. Yeah, and he even mentioned that Dorothy had called him from the hospital hours before she disappeared. Now, Pam said that she was by Dorothy's side that entire time, other than when Dorothy went to the restroom towards the end of their time at the hospital, and then, you know, when she went to her vehicle. Right, so this, I mean, this gives us a lot of questions too. Is that part a lie, or did she really know this guy? Maybe she knew him, she didn't know he was the stalker. There's so many possibilities here. Yeah. So after the horrific phone call that Dorothy's mother received one week after her daughter disappeared, she would go on to get anonymous phone calls by the same man every single Wednesday. As weeks turned into months and months into years, Dorothy would remain unfound and the harassing phone calls never stopped. That is just, it's the most... I just I have It's the, the most terrifying, currently. yeah, it's the most terrifying and interesting thing to me in this entire case is that even after Dorothy's gone and she's missing, this guy is still calling the family. And that's why, too, sorry I keep saying this, why I think this is her stalker, but Dorothy was receiving consistent phone calls and now her mom is... And on some days, the caller would ask Vera if she was related to Dorothy. And when she replied yes, he would say, I've got her and hang up. So these were also very repetitive phone calls of this guy just saying the same goddamn thing. Yeah. Other days, he would profess that he killed Dorothy. The phone calls lasted four years, every Wednesday for four years. And that's like hundreds of calls. Yeah. And despite the police installing a voice recorder in Vera's home, hoping to trace the calls, they were unable to pinpoint a location since the conversations were very brief. This just brings me back to Black Christmas. Oh, 100%. This guy would hop on the phone, be very, very quick, make his little crazy remarks, and then he would jump off. Well, because he would just say things, oh, are you related to Dorothy? Yes, I've got her. Hang up. Like, that's five seconds worth of conversation. Exactly. So he was very smart in that way, knowing that he can call every Wednesday and taunt this poor woman, saying horrible things about her daughter, and then just hang up, and he knows he's not going to be found. I just can't even imagine what Vera and and Dorothy's father had to go through. Like, And having just... that fear, sorry, having that fear and sitting there, the phone rings on a Wednesday and you know you've been receiving these calls for so long, you know it's this guy. Yeah, and I feel like at some point, Vera probably just started to expect them. Like, she's just like, it's fucking Wednesday yeah, again, oh you know? God, like poor, poor woman. Yeah. So in August of 1984, four years after Dorothy disappeared, a construction worker discovered dog remains 
by Santa Ana Canyon Road, approximately 13 miles away, or 20 kilometers, from the UC Irvine Medical Hospital where Dorothy was last seen. When he continued digging, he unearthed another set of remains that sadly belonged to Dorothy Jean Scott. And next to her were a turquoise ring and a wristwatch that had stopped at 12.30 a.m. on May 29, 1980, just over an hour after her disappearance. And with this, I wonder, did she have a watch? Because that's the exact detail that I was able to find in multiple articles that said it stopped on that day. So does that mean she had a watch that had the date on it? Is that a thing? I, I Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, maybe. So uh, that's just what I found. So anyway, that's very, very eerie, too, that it stopped at that time. Was that on purpose? Yeah, I was almost thinking that might be a breadcrumb or like a yeah. clue that the killer left behind. Oh, this guy's so, so messed up. So her bones were partly charred, and authorities believe that they had been there for at least two years since a bushfire had swept the area in 1982. So this would lead to the charring of her remains, which would lead them to believe, of course, that they they would have been there before 1982, and obviously we believe they were there as of 1980 when she disappeared. Yes. An autopsy was conducted, but the medical examiner was unable to provide a cause of death due to the state of the remains, though foul play is undoubtedly involved. It was stated that the bones were Dorothy's skull, two thighs, a pelvis, and an arm. And those are all the remains that they found, and it's still unknown where the rest of her is. The bones apparently were also under the bones of a dog, like I had said, which could just be by happenstance, but we're not sure. And after the body was confirmed to be Dorothy's comparing dental records, a memorial service was held in her honor on August 22nd, 1984. And can I just point out that the calls stopped coming into Vera after four years, so right around the time that Dorothy's remains were found? So is it possible that the killer is thinking, hey, they're getting a little too close to me right now um, because they found her remains? Technology is getting better yeah. as the years go on. I better stop making these phone calls because it's just getting too hot. And actually, after the local newspapers announced that the remains had been identified as Dorothy's, the phone rang again at the Scott home. When Vera answered it, a now familiar voice asked her, Is Dorothy home? The caller called twice and the calls finally ended for good. Just so crazy. Like, they ended after her remains were found. What does that mean? It's just, I don't know. It's such a mystery to me. So on April 23rd, 1994, what would have been Dorothy's 46th birthday, her father Jacob passed away at the age of 69. Eight years later in 2002, her mother would also depart. They never received any answers as to who why, and how their daughter died. Dorothy's son, Sean, has gone on to live a meaningful life, but still pursues justice for his mother. It's now been over 40 long years, and Dorothy Jane Scott's abduction and murder remains unsolved. Now, let's discuss potential suspects in Dorothy's case, because throughout this episode, there has been no inkling as to who this caller could possibly be. Dorothy's son, Sean's father, was investigated and questioned. However, he had an airtight alibi and had been in his hometown 
in Missouri at the time, so he was ruled out immediately. And as we know, he didn't play a role in Sean's life, so there doesn't seem to be much of a motive anyway. Although, Dorothy's place of work, Swinger's Psych Shop, was previously owned by her father, Jacob, but it was eventually sold to John Cosilla, who already owned John's head shop, hence why it's called John's Custom Head Shop. Yes. So while Jacob, Dorothy's father, was no longer actively involved in the business, John kept him around as a handyman to take care of any repairs needed around the stores. Something that's interesting about that last call to Vera after Dorothy's remains were found, so the man switched it up a bit and called at night this time. Well, Jacob answered the last call, and the caller, before saying anything, hung up and never called again. So people think that it may have been John, and he was, you know, John Cosilla, the one who owned the shops, and he was worried that Jacob would recognize his voice since they did business together. Now, this is pure speculation, but definitely an interesting take, especially since we know that Dorothy recognized the voice but couldn't place it. And this would also explain how the stalker knew where Dorothy worked and lived. And speaking of John Cosilla, he was arrested in June of 1992 for cash structuring. And for those who don't know, cash structuring is like money laundering. So you're hiding large amounts of cash to evade taxes. So it's not like he was charged with stalking or murder or anything in the realm of a crime like that, but it's still a crime. But shortly after his arrest, he was released on a $100,000 bail. So John is a potential person of interest, but there's, there's really no evidence to link him to any crimes uh, can, pertaining to Dorothy Jane Scott. Yeah, I think it's an interesting angle, especially with Jacob having picked up the phone and the guy suddenly stopped talking. So we can go, on, go ahead and assume that Vera didn't know him very well or wouldn't know his voice right off the bat. Um, but I also think that if Dorothy recognized the voice but couldn't place it, it probably wasn't John because we can assume that she saw John, her boss, on a fairly regular basis. So I don't know how much weight I put on this one. Yeah, so the next uh, suspect or potential suspect is this man named Mike Butler. So according to an article with details given by Dorothy's son, a man named Mike Butler was an unstable individual who lived in the Santiago Mountains right there in Orange County, California and was involved in cult activity, though this is unconfirmed. He knew Dorothy through his sister, who worked at the psych shop, and according to those close to Dorothy, he was obsessed with her. He grew up in the area and attended Fullerton Union High School, and then went on to uh, major in English at California State University. When he became an adult, he was drafted into the U.S. Army, but once he was released, he moved back to Orange County. And he was later employed as a machine shop maintenance employee and later went on to become an electrician next door to the psych shop and the head shop. So he was right there. Unfortunately, there is hardly any evidence to consider him a real suspect, but it would make sense that he would be one because he knew where Dorothy worked. He apparently had a deep interest in her and would then also know that she took Conrad to the hospital, it, you know, assuming... Being next door, yeah. Yeah, if he was there. I know this meeting was at 9 p.m., so maybe he wasn't, but what I would like to know, if he had an alibi or if he was at work, and he could have seen Dorothy leaving with Conrad and Pam and then followed them. And also something I saw online that I thought was interesting, 
If he was involved in cult activity, was the dog found on Dorothy's remains connected? You know, I mean, I I don't really know what that would mean, but... I don't know what it means either. I'm not in a cult, so I don't know. But (laughs) someone had mentioned that. I'm like, yeah, that kind of could be a thing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see where you're you're coming from with that. It's just kind of weird that there was a dog on top of her. Like, I don't know. It's bizarre. So Mike passed away in 2014 due to health complications. And although he was and is on police's radar as a potential suspect... There just isn't any evidence. And now that he has passed, especially with her car having been burned, her remains being unable to actually figure out her cause of death or take any evidence off them because they had been there for four years. What can you really do? How can you really point anybody to this crime, especially if they're dead? Yeah, that's it's a really tough thing. And, you know, cases like this are really hard because it's just before we had really any technology. Right. And Dorothy's son has apparently tried to get into contact with Mike's sister, the one who worked with Dorothy, to see if she has any information or knows if her brother was involved. But he has never been able to contact her. And although we don't know her first name, we know her last name is likely Butler, but she's apparently a well-known singer in the area. So he has been trying to get in contact with her and see if she knows anything. And sadly, she has just not been responsive. Yeah, so this is a really interesting angle. I, I I wonder where that could potentially go. So hopefully they do investigate that. But um, there's also been a lot of speculation that Dorothy's disappearance is connected to another disappearance of a young woman that took place in the area just a couple years later. Her name was Patricia Jean Schneider, and she was 25 years old. On July 31st, 1982, two years after Dorothy's disappearance, Patricia had just finished her shift as a cocktail waitress in Indian Hills, California, and stopped into a Circle K in Pedley, California, at around 3.45 a.m. And by the way, Pedley is around Pomona, and it's about 20 miles or 32 kilometers from Anaheim. Patricia started to have car trouble, which is why she stopped the convenience store, where a clerk noticed that there were two men in the parking lot. Cut to the next morning, her car was found burning in a field near an intersection with no sign of Patricia. If it were in fact two men, I don't really buy this connection. I would assume that a stalker is usually one person, especially in Dorothy's case when it it seemed like it was the same guy every time. You know, they probably would have been working alone and that really seems like the case in Dorothy's murder. Also burning evidence is extremely common, so it's horribly tragic that this happened to Patricia, and I I really hope her case gets solved as well, because especially if this guy saw two men in the parking lot, that's awfully suspicious. Yeah. So the fire to the vehicles is pretty much where the similarities end. It was never reported that Patricia received harassing phone calls, so there's no connection there either. And also, if Dorothy Stalker had moved on to someone else, but sadly, to this day, no new evidence has been uncovered. And Dorothy's case has very much gone cold. But her son is still out there looking for answers. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this redone episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Friday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. So we're not going in order here as far as covering the cases because I don't want to do one 
you know, every, I don't want to do them all in a row. In right, case, we don't want to do the, the seven all in a row just and, in case other people have heard yeah, them. Yeah, that's really the only reason because for anybody who has been a Going West fan for, or listener, for a long time and you did hear those cases, maybe you're like, I don't want to hear that again. I already know that case. So that's why we're not doing them in order one after the other, but just know that we are going to sprinkle them in here and there. And uh, let us know what you guys think about that. If you dig that, um, cause we've just gotten so many comments from people asking for those episodes to be redone. And I, I would love to do that too. Cause it's been a while since we've covered them. So we'd love to and also since you can't listen to them we want to help bring these back into the light absolutely so thank you guys so much for listening to this episode and remember we're going to be at crime con so if you guys want to come see us hang out get a photo with us do do some high fives and hugs (laughs) um we're going to be there from april 29th through may 1st and you can use our code going west to get 10 percent off your standard badge not only does it help out you but it also helps out us. Yeah, it is going to be so fun. Heath and I have never been to CrimeCon, but it's it's basically going to be like summer camp, but for true crime and in a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it seems awesome. So we're really excited. A bunch of you guys have already commented that you're coming out and, and you're excited to come hang out with Heath and I, and, and we can't wait to meet you guys. Because over the years, like, you know, you guys will send us messages, you'll comment, but it it's that's where it stops. Like, we've been approached in public sometimes, but... Other than that, it feels it's going to feel very surreal to actually see you guys in person and know that you're real people. (laughs) It's going to be a great moment. Honestly, I can't wait to meet you guys. Um, We're very excited. So please make sure you use our code going west for 10 percent off your standard badge. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.